She acted ruthlessly without giving the victims a last word. Harsh shots and anger claimed the lives of three of her relatives and a social worker from the Department for Children and Families. Welcome back to our channel. Today we are going to turn over the cruel case of Jody Herring. This case has shaken the state of Vermont and caused panic in American society. Social workers have endured threats. Who precisely is this Jody Herring? What was the impetus behind her behavior? And what on earth gave her the idea that this would be a wise move? Take a deep breath and join us through the door of darkness to uncover the secret behind this tragic case. A senseless revenge with an intolerable crime. The state of Vermont is located in the northeastern United States. In addition to being famous for its verdant forests, gorgeous mountains, and breathtaking hiking routes, Vermont is also the biggest producer of maple syrup in the United States, which happens to be one of my favorite kinds of indulgences. The name of the state derives from two words in French that mean green mountains. The English translation of these words is Vermont. And I bet you did not realize that Vermont is the only state in the United States that does not have a tall building. Decker Towers, which stands at a modest height of 124 feet, is the tallest structure in Vermont. And Jody Herring, who was 40 years old and a citizen of the little city of Barrie, which is located just southeast of the state capital of Montpelier, resided exactly 45 miles away from Decker Towers. Jody Herring was a resident of the city of Barrie. To tell you the truth, I believe the name of the town was Bar and the name of the city was Montpelier. But I now believe that this is merely due to the peculiar manner in which I pronounce words. The year 1975 marked the beginning of its voyage on planet Earth. She came from a very large family from the beginning. Her great-grandfather was one of 16 children, and the vast majority of those children went on to have families of their own. Jody most likely had a larger number of cousins than she could keep track of. We mean no offense. Jody was considered to have been a cheerful and content youngster when she was younger. She had an especially strong bond with her father and was endowed with a naturally upbeat and bubbly personality. However, as Jody developed into an adult, she was unhappily subjected to a number of traumatic and abusive experiences within the context of her family life. Jody's first and possibly most painful experience occurred when she was only five years old. Tragically, her father was discovered dead on the grass in front of their family house. This was Jody's first and most terrible experience. It was believed that he had committed suicide. Jody was at home when this took place, and it was discovered that an empty gun had been placed in his hand. Jody and the rest of the Herring family continue to maintain, even to this day, that their father did not end his own life by taking his own life. David is said to have confided in a small group of close friends that he had been threatened on several occasions prior to the time of his passing, and in the months leading up to his passing, he allegedly went to bed with a gun tick beneath his pillow. 
According to statements made by witnesses who were there, the specked hand looked to have been staged to hold the weapon. However, the cause of death was determined to be suicide in the end. Jody suffered from epileptic seizures following the untimely death of her father, but her family never sought treatment for Jody's condition at a mental health facility. And to make matters even worse, Jody's childhood was characterized by a pattern of neglect that persisted the entire time. Jody and her feelings would be profoundly impacted by each of these occurrences. Throughout her adolescent years, it appeared that she underwent a significant behavioral shift. The young woman would just sit there and look into space for what seemed like hours at a time. According to observations made by her family members and those who were close to her. But, one of her aunts said that she appeared to be unaware of everything as she looked off into the distance and stared blankly. Another aunt named Sandra said that she constantly appeared to be lifeless, as if she were resigned to the fact that she was no longer content in her life. Throughout her childhood, she was subjected to a wide variety of abuse at the hands of her mother and various other members of her family. The level of neglect was so severe that when she was 11 years old, both she and her brother Dwayne, who was 14 at the time, were evicted from the family home by their own mother. And from that point forward, she would frequently live in the back of cars, and when times were particularly tough, her grandparents would take care of her. The situation did not improve, which is quite terrible. She continued to mature in a highly uncomfortable and poisonous environment all through her teenage years, which negatively impacted her development. She was sexually raped when she was 17 years old, which led to her first pregnancy and her first child. And as time went on, she would go on to have two more children outside of marriage before committing herself to a relationship and becoming an adult. Even under the best of circumstances, Jody's predicament remained cause for concern. Her day-to-day -day life was filled with drinking and drug use, both of which were made worse by her deteriorating mental health, which had not yet been addressed by medical professionals. Her mental health was still not stable. And despite the fact that she had three children of her own, she was living on the streets. In an effort to keep themselves off the streets, the four of them would frequently travel from one of the residences of various family members to another. Jody was also not unfamiliar with the legal system. In fact, they were familiar with her for a number of reasons of their own. Jody was just 23 years old when she first ran into issues with the law, which was back in the month of November 1998. At that time, it was determined that she was operating a vehicle while under the influence of alcohol, which resulted in her being sentenced to a period of incarceration lasting many months. In addition, Jody was accused with engaging in counterfeit fraud in June of 2001. And then, only five months after that, she was sentenced to prison after being arrested for driving under the influence for a second time. When she was arrested and found guilty of possessing heroin in May of 2003, 
a novel form of criminal behavior was documented for the first time. In November of 2015, it was discovered that she had once again violated the terms of her probation, which resulted in her being forced to drink hot coffee. Because Jody led such an unsavory lifestyle, it should come as no surprise that social services would become concerned about the care and protection of her three children. In all honesty, this should not come as a surprise. And it was bad for Jody, but in a way, it was lucky for them that her children would be taken away one at a time by the department that dealt with children and families. Because to her addiction to alcohol and drugs, as well as the conviction she received for those offenses, Jody was only able to maintain custody of one of her children in 2014. She had previously given up custody of her first two children to foster care, and now she was doing everything in her power to keep custody of her third and youngest child. However, not long after that, Jody and her youngest daughter would unexpectedly find themselves homeless again. The guidance counselor at Jody's school would learn of this, and eventually, this counselor would approach Jody in order to offer her support. To quote the counselor, Jody, on the other hand, was becoming a little less coherent and hard to follow. It is unclear if this was the result of her chronic drug use or her deteriorating mental state. Both may have played a role. Jody gave a resolutely negative response to the school's offer of aid, which, in the view of the school, demonstrated that she had no intention of altering her behaviors not for the sake of either her or her lone surviving child. It was on the basis of this idea that the school principal arrived at the conclusion that Jody, in her current mental state, was not able to adequately care for her daughter. Therefore, the department that deals with children and families was contacted once more. Jody's situation did not appear to be improving. It became increasingly likely that she was going to miscarry her last child, which contributed to her rising levels of anxiety and fear. Jody's need for alcohol and drugs persisted despite the fact that she was living on the streets because, tragically, her addiction was more powerful than her worry. And as was to be anticipated, her mental health began to deteriorate as well, and in the end, she had exhausted all of her options since she had pushed her luck too far. Because of her consistent disregard for others' well-being and her unwillingness to adapt, her third and youngest daughter had to be removed from the home in the end for her own protection. Jody was incensed when she discovered that the principal of the school was the one who had contacted the department that works with children and families. It appeared to many who were close to her that she was going crazy. Not that her mind had been cluttered with confusion to begin with. She started bragging about how she intended to put a bullet in the head of every individual who was responsible for taking her children away and, quote, watch their brain matter spatter on the floor. Very much the poet. Jody started wallowing in her own anger and resentment. She harbored a grudge against everyone around her and sought vengeance. She then proceeded to demonstrate to Henry, her current partner, a handwritten version of the hit list that she had created. 
a hit list that included not just her, but also two of her relatives named Rhonda and Regina Herring. It was now abundantly evident that Jody was descending into a downward spiral of premeditated planning for violent acts. She made two separate attempts to buy firearms, but both of them were unsuccessful due to the background checks that were performed on her. If it was not already clear to those around her, it should have been. The degree of Jody's mental and emotional decline would become much more obvious in May 2015, when she contacted the landline of one of her relatives and threatened them. This was the moment when Jody's mental and emotional decline became much more apparent. Both Rhonda and Regina had found this call to be quite unsettling, and as a result, they had contacted the authorities to check on her at the residence where she was temporarily staying. When the emergency services arrived, they discovered her lying on the bed, barely awake, surrounded by empty medication bottles and pictures of her children. Following the events of this day, Jody was involuntarily committed to a facility for the treatment of her mental illness because it looked like she had attempted to end her own life. She was admitted to a facility that was close by and given a schedule for a total of 90 days in order to assist her in getting back on track and to provide the support that she so urgently required. Jody, on the other hand, was not going to remain there without putting up a fight. Instead, she claimed that she ought to be freed from her confinement. And exactly one month later, at the end of May, she was finally fired after being employed there for so long. Jody was given an evaluation in the facility, and to be fair, the attending physician strongly recommended that she remain there. However, in spite of the fact that she was obviously unstable, that advice was not required. Jody consequently returned to the outside world only a little more than a third of the way through her timetable, and the choice of the facility to allow this would prove to be a grave error in judgment. A terrible error that, sadly, would have to be remedied by paying a very substantial amount of compensation. Two months have passed, and it is now the early afternoon of August 7 in the small town of Berlin, which is located on the border of Barrie in the state of Vermont. Even though there are fewer than 3,000 people living in this town, it used to be Tiffany Herring's home. Tiffany is the daughter of Rhonda Herring and the cousin of Jody Herring. However, as she neared her front door, the blinking light on her answering machine attracted her attention and diverted her attention away from her plans to visit a friend. She activated the device by pressing the button on it in order to hear the fresh voicemail. At that same instant, she was listening to her speakers when she suddenly became aware of Jody's irate voice. Although the video is not public, Jody reportedly told Rhonda and Regina that they should stop calling DCF or else she would come kill them and shoot their brains out. If you continue to call DCF, Jody will come kill you. This message did not immediately cause Tiffany to become overly frightened. It seemed to her like Jody was engaging in her typical pattern of accusing everyone of conspiring against her. 
She consequently disregarded this voicemail as unimportant and departed from her house in order to visit her body. A mere two hours later, her brother Dwayne would get two voicemails from different people. Because he had a lot on his plate, he was unable to answer the phone in time. However, it was Jody who left those voicemails. In them, she said to him the following. If you have any concerns about your sister, you must contact me immediately or check the news as soon as possible. Otherwise, you will come to regret not having contacted me earlier. After that, Jody Herring departed the residence in which she had been residing and drove to the location that she detested the most, the Department for Children and Families. After she pulled into the parking lot, she exited her vehicle switched off the engine, and waited there by herself. While she was there, people walking by spotted her sitting in her car and yelling, ostensibly to no one in particular. Despite this, they did not inquire as to what the issue was. They proceeded with the rest of their day. It was not entirely obvious why Jody was in this location at the time. It is possible that they were waiting for someone to arrive. However, her children were far away, living with other families and being cared for by other adults. It was a few minutes after five o'clock in the evening that an upbeat lady from Brighton had just exited the DCF through the front door. Laura Sobel was the name of the individual in question. Oceanside, New York, is where Laura, who was 48 years old at the time, spent her childhood years. She worked cases for the Department of Children and Families in the state of Vermont, where she was employed as a caseworker. It was common knowledge that Laura was an exceptionally astute woman. She received a bachelor's degree in political science from the University of Vermont in 1989, and then went on to earn a master's degree in social work from the same institution in 2002. Her educational background includes attending the University of Vermont. She went on to work at the Department of Children and Families, which is where she discovered her calling in life, assisting people who are struggling financially. Laura would run into a man named Timothy Ferenius not long after she began working for the DCF, and they would have a conversation. The two eventually fell in love after a series of events led to their meeting. They would go on to have two of their own children, Julia and Alana, and eventually bring them into the world. It was obvious that Laura has a kind spirit. She had a strong commitment to assisting those around her, and it was clear that she planned to spend the rest of her life providing financial assistance to families who were less fortunate than her own. Laura was soon given the responsibility of supervising Jody's case and she worked closely with the community around her. There was not much calculation involved in this at all. The assignment was the same as all the others, and it was handed to any social worker who had some spare time. However, there was no rationale or explanation for the job. Jody did not have this interpretation. She placed the guilt for her daughter's disappearance squarely on Laura's shoulders. And regrettably, this is the reason why Jody was waiting just here in this parking lot.
Lars' last day of work was August 7, 2015, and she was done, as she did on a daily basis. Although the work was challenging, she was eager to get back to her own family and spend some time with them. And with that, she exited the structure at 219 North Main Street that served as her place of employment. At this precise instant, Jody stepped out of a moving vehicle. In addition to that, she extracted one significant thing from the vehicle with her before closing the door. It was a Remington rifle with a bolt-action mechanism. Jody walked up to Laura and yelled in her face, You know what you did. Laura had no time to run. Jody swiftly brought the Remington rifle up to her shoulder before opening fire on Laura in the face. Jody shot Laura once more after she had already been knocked to the ground, and the second round instantly terminated her life. Jody then started bouncing around in the parking lot while waving her gun and yelling at the same time. They disregarded what I had to say. It was my kid, who is nine years old. They received the punishment that was due to them. Jody was aware of what she had just accomplished. She set her gun down on the ground, and just a few seconds later, she was tackled to the ground by two onlookers who were completely involved in the situation. Furthermore, there was no opposition to this. She remained composed and patient while she waited for the cops to come to her aid. Her work was finished for the day. She had completed the task that she had set out to complete, and at that point, nothing else was important. Jody was observed to be laughing and calm as the police officers arrived at the scene. And when she was being lifted off the ground, Jody was questioned by a law enforcement officer about a red mess that was found on one of her shoes. Jody gave a chuckle, then flicked it off with her shoe and replied, Oh, these are nothing horribly wrong. That sloppy mess was made up of Lara's actual flesh and blood. Almost immediately after that, Jody was brought into custody. I genuinely, deeply hope that I can bring this tale to a close right here. However, regrettably, the circumstances that transpired after Jody's arrest would expose a much more terrible situation than was originally suspected. Tiffany, who was uninformed of the circumstances surrounding Jody's arrest, made the decision to pay a visit to the home of her mother Rhonda, Aunt Regina, and grandmother Julie the morning after Jody was taken into custody. It struck her as weird that she had not heard from any of them the previous evening, so she decided it would be prudent to make a speedy inquiry about how they were doing. She arrived at their home in Berlin, which is situated on an airport road, at approximately 8 o'clock in the morning. However, when Tiffany and her companion arrived at the house, they saw that the front door was wide open. When Tiffany entered, that was the moment when everything in her life began to fall apart. She began her search for her mother and subsequently located her grandmother. Both were found lifeless on the ground nearby. The flooring and the walls were covered in blood when it was discovered. Both of their heads had been blown off by gunfire. Tiffany, in her haste to see her aunt, rushed hurriedly to the upper floor 
where she too would be found dead. It appeared as though Regina put up a fight before taking two gun shots to the torso, which ultimately resulted in her death. Tiffany called 911. And as the inquiry progressed, the police would learn that the ammunition that had been used to shoot her family members was identical to the rounds that had been used by the Remington rifle, which was the same gun that Jody had used the day before. The situation must have been really upsetting for Tiffany. But when she considered who might have been responsible for what happened to her family, she could only think of one person, and that was her very own cousin Jody. Jody plans to enter a plea of not guilty to the charge of murdering Laura. However, just as Tiffany discovered the bodies of her deceased family members, Jody questioned the authorities as to whether or not they had discovered three other bodies. In spite of this, it should go without saying that Jody's offenses, and consequently her charges, were increased from a single to a quadruple homicide. Both the Herring family and the state of Vermont were completely and utterly taken aback by the news. Throughout the entire course of the judicial process, Jody's state of mind would be under intense scrutiny. But despite the careful examination by doctors, the only diagnosis they could come up with was severe anxiety disorder. Jody's anxiety illness was the root cause of her feeling that she could never put her faith in anyone in her life. And it was also the reason why she often turned down assistance from other people. However, it is abundantly clear that this would not shield her from the sweeping reach of the law if she were found to be competent for prosecution. During the entirety of the court proceedings, Jody behaved like, well, Jody. She would frequently sit and appear emotionless as she gazed off into the distance. And it was not until she addressed the families of the people whose lives she had taken that she exhibited any sign of genuine emotion. In the course of my entire life, I have never come across a malicious person. And Mr. Sobol is absolutely correct. The pain caused by the death of a child is nearly impossible to bear. I have been in your shoes, and please accept my sincere condolences. I am unable to take back anything I said that day. I am sorry, but I just cannot do it right now. The jury would find out that the gun she had used to terminate the lives of two innocent people really belonged to her partner at the time she took it from him without either his knowledge or consent. And after her trial, Jody was ultimately found guilty on three charges of second-degree murder for the slayings of her two cousins, Rhonda and Regina Herring, as well as her Aunt Julie Falzer Anno and she was sentenced to 20 years in prison for each of the lives that she took. Jody was also found responsible for the first-degree murder of Laura Sobel, and as a result, she was given a term of life in prison without the possibility of release for this crime. Later on, she filed a petition to have her sentence changed, arguing that if she could be rehabilitated, then she should not be confined to a jail or prison for very long. However, in the end, 
The court decided not to accept her plea because it was of the opinion that she would never be able to be rehabilitated and would forever continue to be a danger to both herself and society owing to her lack of desire to alter her behavior. You made the right choice there. In conclusion, Jody will spend the rest of her life in prison, where she will never again pose a danger to anyone outside in the real world. She will spend her entire life behind bars. In this particular instance, I find that it does not make any sense at all. It is easy for me to comprehend Jody's anguish at the news that her children had been removed from her custody. Yet, the manner in which she responded was so violent and so extreme that it is highly unlikely that she will ever see her children again in her lifetime. I mean, in all seriousness, why on earth did she consider this to be a smart move? The case of Jody Herring raised a lot of questions, ones that range from the safety of social workers all the way to the avoidance of crimes that are associated with mental illness. For instance, in light of the fact that Jody appeared to be emotionally unstable, why was she released from the mental health facility so much earlier than expected? If she had stayed, would there have been a difference in how she was treated? How precisely did she manage to get her hands on a weapon? And do we take sufficient precautions to protect our social workers from undesirables in our community? These questions, none of which have been adequately answered as of yet, are all factors that contribute to the Lao. Not only Laura Sobel's silence was broken, but also those of Rhonda Herring, Regina Herring, and Julie Falzarano. Noise was heard through their silence. Four innocent people were taken from this world as a result of one senseless act of violence. It is easy to forget that Jody Herring has wreaked havoc on more than one other family, but this fact is important to keep in mind. She has also wreaked havoc on her own family. Despite the loss of their mother, Laura's children will go on living, and so will Tiffany's. After Laura passed away, the University of Vermont, which was also the institution where she earned her degrees, granted completely compensated scholarships to her children so that they could continue in her footsteps and honor her legacy. And despite the fact that progress is gradual, there is a persistent need to action to increase the safety of social workers. These are individuals who put their own safety at danger on a daily basis in order to assist and enhance the lives of those who are struggling. The implementation of new security and safety policies is something that will continue. I thank you for taking the time to be interested in Jody Herring's case today. If you are interested in what we have learned today, please click like to support us. If you are passionate about true crime stories, please subscribe to our channel to not miss the latest information. Jody Herring is a suspicious criminal, and despite her struggles growing up, there's no excuse for her actions. In your opinion, if Jody Herring had received proper treatment for her mental health problem, what would have happened? Do you guys believe that will make a difference? Leave your comments in the comments section below. See you in other crime stories. But before the next reunion,
Always be careful and protect each other. Goodbye.